Well, good morning, church. How are you guys doing today? It's good to see you all. You all look so well today. Thanks for braving the, uh, the rain out to come out here. My name is Scott. I'm the pastor of worship here. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you, our senior pastor is currently in Haiti or returning from Haiti, where he's been teaching pastors how to better disciple some of the, the people of the region of Belladere in Haiti. I so respect that about Pastor R, that he has this deep love and appreciation for those precious people. Um, and, but even more, one of our, our objectives when we talk about being disciples of Jesus is that we don't want to be known only for our seating capacity. In other words, that's how many people we can fit in a room. But instead, we want to be known for our sending capacity. And so Pastor R is modeling that for us. And we have many others that will be on mission in Haiti later this summer. But really, that doesn't just go to those who go across an ocean or across the country's border, but that we're all sent and on mission. So today, we're going to close out our conversation in the book of James. James uh, is a great study for someone who uh, maybe is starting in their faith or unsure about their faith. And we've said already that James was the half-brother of Jesus himself and that James is a great apologetic that Jesus is the Son of God because what would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Son of God? And yet that's what James tells us. He says that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, there are some people who may look at the church and say, really, you're going to base your belief statement off of a bunch of writings that are 2,000 years old. How do we know that it's not just a myth? I think it's all just made up. Consider this for just a moment, that the Christian faith is not based on a book. It's based on an event. And I believe that God's word, before I get nasty emails, I believe that God's word is the authoritative, inspired, and errant word of God and the authority for everything that we do here. But the Christian faith isn't based on that book. It's based on an event because these early Christians, like James, never had the Bible that we now have in our hands. But what they did was they saw Jesus and how he lived and how he died and most importantly, how he resurrected from the grave. They saw all that. They experienced all that. And James was one of those people that saw that. And then he dedicated his life to sharing this mission about Jesus' message and his salvation. As a matter of fact, James believed it so much that he was martyred, that he suffered, he was killed because he believed his brother was the Son of God. And the events surrounding his death were so fascinating. We're not going to read about them in the book of James because you can't write about your own death. Right, So there's a respected historian, his name is Josephus, and he writes about James' death, that 39 years after Jesus resurrected from the dead, the historical account tells us that the church was starting to grow in popularity. And this freaked out some of the Pharisees and the religious leaders within Jerusalem as the Christians grew and grew in strength and number and the impact of them grew. They started to get worried, and so there was this event called the Passover was going to be taking place in Jerusalem, which all these Christians would come together for. And they were worried, and they said, how can we, how can we squash this movement a little bit? Let's get someone that they trust to speak about who Jesus really is. I know, we'll talk to Jesus' brother. 
He'll know that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. And so they asked James that when everyone assembled, would you go up to the summit of the temple, the same place that Jesus was tempted, and that they asked him, they asked him to persuade the people not to entertain erroneous opinions concerning Jesus. They wanted James to speak to people and tell them that Jesus was just a man, that what they had heard about Jesus wasn't true. And so James, he gets up on the summit of the temple mount and he says this, He says, Christ himself sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power and will come on the clouds of heaven. See, the plan of those Pharisees backfired. James got up and testified that Jesus was who he says he was, and it so enraged the Pharisees that they threw him off the top of this temple. But the fall didn't kill him. And so the Pharisees gathered around and started stoning him to death with large rocks they could find hitting him. And James fell to his knees and he prayed this. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. So I would ask you that even if you don't believe in the Bible, would you follow your brother as the Son of God? Would you even die for him if you thought it was a hoax, if it was just made up? Of course not. If you knew that it was something that, hey, let's just make up this story about Jesus, the moment the heat turned up, you'd deny it as false. But the records and the historians are so clear that these early Christians were so radically changed and so radically committed to the person and the story of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah and Son of God that they were willing to be eaten by lions, stoned to death, beheaded and crucified because they knew it was true. You don't do that if it's a hoax. You only do that if it's real. And so this was the crowd that James was speaking to. See, he was primarily shepherding these Christians in the early church. He would see them experience things in life, and he would speak to them, encouraging them in the faith. James was not primarily a theologian. He was primarily a pastor. And so he would see them going through difficulty, and he would encourage them. And you know what? People today are just like people back then. James was writing to people who went through junk in this life just like you and me. They had stress. They had anxieties. They went through sickness. They had to take care of their parents. They had cancer. They had financial difficulty. They had relationships that were crumbling. They were under persecution. And James has something to say to these Christians about suffering and trials and pain. And I believe that the human condition is the same way today as it was back then. And so James has something to say to us about how we're supposed to endure these trials and this suffering. Because here's something that we all know intuitively. You guys are smart, you get this. That it's not a matter of if we will suffer and experience trials, it's a matter of when. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And for many people, we are just waiting for the shoe to drop. And no amount of wealth, uh, accumulating wealth or riches or power or insurance or a bigger house or a safer car will safeguard us from the suffering that we all will inevitably face because pain and suffering and difficulty and loss are constants of the human condition. And we know this. We know this. And yet there's something within our Western hearts that are not okay with this. And we do everything we can to kind of build up things so that we don't go through this. And it's like we know it intellectually that we will go through suffering, but when it happens, we feel like somehow spiritually, emotionally, or morally, there's something wrong with this and we object to it. 
And yet, James begins his book, and listen to what he says. He says this. He says, consider it all what? Joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. What a counterintuitive thing to say. Why would he say, count it as joy when I go through this? Because James knew that trials and suffering does something to the heart of a Christian when we persevere through it. It builds up our faith somehow. It has a positive spiritual effect on the life of a Christian. And so today we're going to close out our study in the book of James asking the question, how are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to patiently endure suffering? And I'd like to say off the bat that there's no way I can do justice to this topic. In getting ready for this, I realized that there are deep places of hurt and suffering for so many people, either that you're coming out of, you're in the middle of, or you know that it's coming up. And in no way do I want to trivialize that or say that I understand it somehow, but simply to say that God's word speaks about it. And while I may not understand it, God certainly does. And so we can go to his word and hear what it has to say. So I'd like to look together. We're going to study today in James chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 7. So if you have a Bible, pull it out. If you need one, please raise your hand and our ushers will give you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. We're going to read uh, together. And I want to have a stand out of respect for God's word. If you have a, a portable device, you can turn that on. Get the Version app if you don't already have it. We're going to start in verse 7. Let's all stand together for a reading of God's word. I will read it over you. Please listen and internalize as you follow along in your Bibles. He says this, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, don't swear, not by heaven or earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or a no, otherwise you will be condemned. Then James says this, Is any among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And he prayed, again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the reading of God's precious word. You guys can have a seat.
the answer, according to James, of how do we persevere through trial is prayer. The power to persevere is through prayer. Listen to what James says. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. This is so critical to our times of suffering that God our Father hears and cares about our pain and about our suffering. That in our time of greatest need, we have a Father who loves us dearly and wants us to talk to Him about it. Because suffering is normative in the life of any person, whether you follow Christ and Jesus or not. And the outflow of the Christian heart should be prayer and praise. James says if you're in trouble, if you're suffering, what should you do? You should pray, right? Now that makes all the sense in the world to say in church because we would expect that here, right? But how do you do in your life? When you're on your commute, when you're at work, when you're at home, when the trials are knocking at the door, is your knee-jerk reaction going to stop and pray about this? Or do you turn to something else? Do you turn to a bag of Oreos or some substance? Do you pray? If you were to go through my journal, I, I prayer journal, so in my journal I, I pray through writing it down. I find that it helps my stream of consciousness not get so distracted when I write down. And so what you would see if you were to read this is a constant cycle of joy and agony. Like, you'd read this and go, man, you're pretty, like, up and down all the time, Avi. I'd feel like the psalmist where one day it's like, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, all that within me, praise his holy name. And the next day, Lord, vanquish my enemies, woe is me, right? These ups and these downs. But one thing you would see for sure, that when things get difficult, when trials press in, that's when my written prayers start flowing. James is saying that as a Christian, when you're suffering, pray. It's not a pithy saying, it's not catching, catchy, but it's simple and it's powerful. Pray. And prayer has two powerful effects for the life of the Christian. First, prayer changes circumstances. And James makes a point of saying this, that Elijah was just like us, and when he prayed, the rain stopped for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the heavens opened, and it watered the crops, and they started to flow. He says that Elijah was just like you and I. The reality is that prayer is exceptionally powerful. Prayer is, to talking, prayer is talking to God. It's using simple, everyday language to speak to our Heavenly Father. And one of the, the mistakes that a new believer, or sometimes Christians have, is thinking that we have to use a particular type of language or a number of words in order for God to hear us. That we have to speak instantly in Old King James language with these and thous and thises and so on and so forth, right? Prayer is simply talking to God. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, don't be like the pagans who go out to the street corner and think that God's going to hear them because of their many, many words. Sometimes we feel like if we pray with more words, maybe God will hear us greater. That if we just talk longer, God will hear our hearts. But that's not what Jesus told us. He said that when we pray, here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to speak and say, our Father who's in heaven. Now we glance right over that, but the significance of that cannot be overstated. 
that to the Jews listening in that time, they understood the God of the Old Testament who was mighty, who was strong, who was holy, who was greater, but never as Father. And Jesus said, you speak to him and you say, our Father, because here's what Jesus opened up. When we believe in Christ for salvation, not only is God the man upstairs, but we can speak to him as Father. If we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, we get saved and we get adopted into the family of God. And now we can go to the Father as a child goes to their dad. Jesus says when we talk to our Father, we're supposed to follow him around the house, asking him and telling him about our issues and asking him to intervene. Now, I'm a dad, and I've got three beautiful, amazing, wonderful children that I love more than anything in the world. But as a human father, when they start following me around the house, Dad, can I play your phone? Dad, can I be on your iPad? Dad, can we go watch a show? Can I have a snack, Dad? Can we do this, Dad? Can you take me out, Dad? I start pulling my hair out, right? My nerves start fraying. But Jesus says that's exactly what we're supposed to do with the Father, that we're supposed to follow him around the house in prayer, asking him relentlessly to intervene. And for some of you, you don't know God that way. Maybe you've had prayers where you've been in the desert and you've prayed out, and it's like, I'm praying to the man upstairs, but you've never known him as the Father. And that is something that Jesus invites us into because of him. And only because of him. To follow him around the house. Several years ago, we went through a series called The Praying Life. And in The Praying Life, it brought such richness and depth because the primary metaphor of prayer was that picture of a child hopping up onto the lap of their father, knowing that the father loves them, that the father cares, and talking to the father about the issues that they're facing just talking to the Father. When it comes to suffering in our lives, when it comes to trials, when it comes to pain and difficulty, God is the only one who truly can do something about it. And this is something I try to work in within, work within my Christian community on in my small group, that many times in, in church circles we'll say, hey, let's get together and pray. Maybe we have 30 minutes and we'll spend 25 minutes talking to one another and five minutes talking to God. But I'm telling you right now, if you talk with me about your issues, I can't fix anything. So in my small group, I say, let's spend five minutes speaking to one another and 25 minutes speaking to God. He's the one who can do something about it. Jesus says that our prayers are powerful. Listen to what he says in Matthew 21. He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith... And do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree. See, the fig tree didn't produce fruit. And so Jesus cursed it, and it withered like that. You can imagine the, the, the disciples' jaw just dropping. You know, right? So he says, you, not only will you do that, but even, uh, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Man, does that test my faith. I don't know any time I've told a mountain to fall into the sea. This really stretches me. But Jesus says, believing, you will receive. 
So how do we live that out, though? If we want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, we have to look at what Jesus did. And so we have a picture of Jesus in his greatest time of suffering. His greatest time of suffering. And what did he say? He said this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That was his request. But then he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. And it seems that somehow the Christian faith balances those two tensions of believing you will receive, and yet, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And we don't want to err on either end of those. We don't want to not believe, but we also need to understand that when it comes to prayer, I see this world through a veil, and I may not understand everything perfectly, And so we can have room within our faith to say, God, we don't see it perfectly, but you do. And so not my will, but yours be done. There are some precious people in my life, and they practice in prayer, um, putting a a veil over over their heads. And I asked, why do you do that? I said, because it reminds me that when I pray, I'm seeing this world through a veil. It's a powerful picture. So we have to balance those out. We have faith. God can do anything for those who truly believe, but we need to submit to God's will and not our our own. So prayer changes our circumstances. But the second thing that prayer changes is prayer changes our hearts. There are times when God will choose to answer our request, not by changing the circumstance, but by giving us a special ability to press through the difficulty, giving us a special ability to forgive the unforgivable, giving us a special ability to love the unlovable. And I find that the times when my heart and my stomach is most tied up in knots with anxiety about a situation, when I press into prayer, most often... God changes my heart. That's not a statement of disbelief that he can't change the circumstance, but most often he changes my heart. This is what happened to the Apostle Paul. See, the Apostle Paul had a great issue too. We don't know what it was. He just said three times I pleaded that God would take this issue from me. But this is how, this is how um, God responded to Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. He did not take away Paul's problems. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, God gave Paul a special grace to press on through the difficulty. God's response was to strengthen his heart and not change his circumstances. As we read this passage, another point to consider is that that prayer is personal for sure, but prayer is is also communal. Prayer is personal, and prayer is communal. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at James 5, 14. He says this, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Prayer is not something that we're only supposed to do alone but that when the body of Christ comes together, when when Christians come together, there's power in that prayer. And that itself is a great reason to be a part of a real-life discipleship group, a small group here at Grace, because that's an environment where people can share your burdens and agree with you in prayer and lift it up. James is saying that when we come together, there is power in the we. And he seems to, to draw a correlation between the effectiveness 
and power of prayer in the person who is doing the praying. He puts a special emphasis on the elders of the church. So what do we mean by that? Let's double-click on this word for just a moment. If you grew up in the church, if you've been around the church for a while, maybe you've heard about church elders is what we call them. As a matter of fact, out in the North Lobby, we have a, 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 has all the pictures of all the people who are serving as elders at the church. And by that, what we mean is a group of godly men who meet the qualifications according to 1 Timothy 3, and they operate as a group as the highest level of authority within the church. They, office in, they operate in the office of elder overseer is the other word for that. That's the way that we operate here. But James is talking about something different than that. James was coming, about, coming from a Hebrew background, and he was writing to Jews that were scattered. And the word translated here for this Greek word is presbyterios. And that means a spiritually mature older male or female. A spiritually older, spiritually mature male or female. And this is not the same word that we see in 1 Timothy 3. In 1 Timothy 3, we see this word episcopae, which is the office of elder and overseer. And this was consistent with the Old Testament Jewish view of those who are older males and females within uh, the local church, both those who are officially in leadership and not in leadership. In other words, these are people who are spiritually mature, who have gone through their life persevering, can testify to the faithfulness of God, that there's something significant about those people who come, pray over anointing it with oil in the name of the Lord. There's something significant about that. So what does this mean? What does this mean to us? It means that this type of prayer that we read in, in James chapter 5 would certainly include those who hold the office of elder. In other words, those people who are out on the board, out in the north lobby. But it's not limited to them. It's not limited to them. There's something powerful and significant about those who have gone through the difficulty, coming together, testifying, and in prayer, pray over these individuals. So James is saying that if you're sick, call those people around you and have them pray over you. But check out what James says next. He says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. As we read uh, this passage, there's a doctrine that emerges that, frankly, I don't like. I wish it wasn't there. It makes me uncomfortable. There seems to be an implication that the sickness of the person, that the suffering of the person could have been attached to some sin in their life, that they did something, and as a result, suffering came into their lives. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like picturing God that way. And so I did some searching, and I said, is this really a bit, like, is, is this true? Is this really what, what God's Word has to say? This is called the doctrine of divine retribution. That's what smarter people than me call the doctrine of divine retribution. And it's basically that God punishes a person for something bad or sinful that they've done in their life. And we actually have examples of that happening all over Scripture. Think about in the Old Testament where, where um, God looked down at the earth and he saw wickedness all around and so he sent a flood. And a lot, a lot of people died. 
Or there was this king named Uzziah in the Old Testament, and he did something sinful, and as a result, he was struck with leprosy. I think about David, who sinned with Bathsheba, and because of that sin, he lost his child. So there's a lot of examples of this happening. The nation of Israel, when they grumbled and complained and worshipped idols, tens of thousands of people were killed by earthquakes and snakes and sickness and all sorts of things. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, of course that happens in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the God of wrath and we're now in the, God, the age of grace and God is only good to us now. But consider in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to the early, early church in the New Testament that some of you have become sick and have fallen asleep because you took communion in an unworthy way. So clearly, there's support in it in the Bible for divine retribution. But there's a danger in looking at someone suffering and automatically assuming that there's some sin or judging them because there's sin in their life. Because here's the thing. In Scripture, there are plenty of times when people got this wrong. Job in the Old Testament went through a time of intense suffering, lost all of his kids, all of his property. He was left with with just sitting in an ash heap, scraping his boils with shards of clay. It doesn't get much worse than that. And his friends came around him and said, Job, surely you must have done something to make God mad at you. And they were wrong. And God set the record straight with those friends. Similarly, in John 9, verses 3, so these, the disciples brought to Jesus this man, and they said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man was blind. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind. And so Jesus answers, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I, I had a friend. His name was Howard, and, um, and I get a call from Howard I'm in the emergency room. And so I went to visit Howard in the emergency room, and literally I walked in the door, and there was Howard on the welcome mat of the emergency waiting room, doubled over in pain. I said, Howard, what's wrong? I feel like I have an ice pick in my stomach. Well, he had kidney stones, and he went through really bad episodes of kidney stones. And I remember a well-meaning but misguided Christian who came up to Howard and said, there's sin in your life that you're being, that you have to go through this. Let me just tell you, church, as your pastor, as someone who loves you, don't do that. Don't go up to someone in the middle of suffering and accuse them of sin. Right? Let's let God be the one who judges that because it can be incredibly hurtful to the person who's going through that suffering. But the doctrine of divine retribution shows us that there, there may be pain and suffering because of sin, but just because someone's going through pain and suffering does not mean they're sin. You follow me? You follow me? Okay. But here's what James is inviting us to do. He's saying, look, if you're going through these times, do a self-assessment. Look at yourself and say, is there some sort of sin in my life that I'm not confessing? And I'm not talking about like, well, I don't know, maybe I turned on red when I wasn't supposed to. Like, not like unknown sins that we just don't really know about. We're talking about defiant sins that you know that you've not confessed to the Father and that you've not brought to appropriate people in your life. He's inviting us to take a self-assessment. And then he says to confess it. If there is a sin, to confess it. And notice he doesn't say you have to go to a priest to do this. He says confess to one another. 
confess to someone spiritually mature within your Christian community, and that somehow there's power in this confession that when we bring things into light, sin no longer has a hold on us. The book of Ephesians tells us that, that when we bring things into the light, it doesn't have a hold on us anymore, that somehow that confession can bring about healing. So if you're going through suffering, you take an honest assessment, and if you know that there's no unconfessed sin in your life, you can go boldly knowing that, this, that you don't have to be judged or suffer condemnation from anyone or anything, that you're not under divine retribution. Prayer is powerful. Prayer changes circumstances, and prayer changes our hearts. Prayer is the language of the heart that engages the heart of the Father in our suffering and in our difficulties. And we can go to him like a child who sits on their father's lap, knowing that we have a father that cares, that loves us, that is fond of us. So here's how I'd like to close out our time together. It'll be a little risky, but I think we can do this. As I was talking, I know there are people in this room who are processing and saying, I'm in the middle of, I'm at the beginning of, or I'm at the tail end of some great time of spiritual, physical, emotional, mental suffering. I'm going through this. If that's you, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to practice James 5 as a body this morning. And so what I would ask you to do, if that's you if you're able to stand up, you know it. If, if, if you're not able to stand up, just raise a hand. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have two brothers come up, and we're going to spend five minutes just in prayer over these people who may be going through that kind of suffering. So if that's you, I know I'm asking you to do something brave, but if you're a small group leader around this person, if they're in your community, I would encourage you to come alongside them and pray for them, pray over them, because our God cares. So if that's you, I'd just invite you to do that if you feel so led. And we're going to spend some time praying for those people. Lord, as we pray, we put put our eyes upon you. Look on your face, O Father. Look on your wonderful face. You love us so much. Thank you, Lord, for calling us as your son and as your daughter. Thank you, Lord, for the blood that is on the cross for my punishment, for our punishment. Thank you, Lord, for making the enemy as a public spectacle, O Father. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Because of the promise that you say that you're in the midst of us, O Father. You're in the midst of everything, O Father, Lord. You're in the midst of the storm. You're in the midst of all the the heavy waves that overwhelm us. You're in the midst of it, O Father. Thank you, Lord, as we heard today, O Father, Lord. Sometimes you calm the storm. Sometimes you make us walk on these waves. Praise you, we thank you. Thank you, Lord. I pray for each and every one of us who is going through situations, O Father, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for prayer being a powerful weapon that we can always talk to you and call to you and you said you will answer. We praise you. And we said, oh Father Lord, we we read, oh Father Lord, in the name of Jesus that we can ask anything. And you're always there, faithful, just God to give us, oh Father. 
We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in prayer and before I pray, if anyone else has sensed the nudging of the Lord just to simply stand, do so. It's a sign of courage, not weakness. Lord God, those of us who are standing, those of us who are seated, may have had the thought while Pastor Scott was preaching and teaching, my suffering feels like it's lasting a long time. Some may be looking up and and feeling like they're seeing an iron ceiling or an iron sky and their prayers are bouncing back down. We say, Lord, please help. Please give your comfort and peace. Thank you for reminding us in these verses that you, Lord, are compassionate, full of kindness. You're a merciful Lord. You don't give us the things that we deserve, but you reign upon us grace. If some of us are standing or seated and our suffering is because of defiant sin, then God help me, help us. Bring us to a point of confession, of humble repentance, and experience confessing to our sins to one another in Jesus' name. Those of us who are experiencing suffering for reasons not because of sin, may we open our hands, crawl up into your lap, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Daddy, and say, God, help us. God, forgive us. I pray, we pray for healing emotionally, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, physically, in Jesus' name. We cry out to you, Lord. You alone are the one who can do that. As Pastor Scott said, he can't, I can't. We can support, we can bear one another's burdens, but we cannot resolve the problem. Only you can. Lord, to these who are standing and seated, please bring your healing, your comfort, your grace, your mercy. Abba Father, Heavenly Daddy, we desperately need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. So we're going to close out. We're just providing some space in this time. I'd like to invite everyone to stand together. We're going to sing a song that talks about the peace that comes. In Philippians 4, it tells us not to be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God and then he says this that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus 
And so as we sing this song, that's what we're declaring out. God, you know our anxieties. We bring it to you. We want to trade our anxieties for the peace of God so that we can declare with one voice that it is well.